Hey guys, there is currently a study going on. It's one of the largest human clinical studies to date aimed at trying to understand and develop preventative treatment for Alzheimer's disease, and it's being conducted all across the nation. You or someone that you know, someone that you love, can potentially be involved in this study, potentially receive some preventative treatment for Alzheimer's, and most importantly, you will indeed be helping in the fight against the disease by taking part in helping us in our understanding of the causes. It's called the A4 study. It's being headed by Dr. Risa Sperling, who you will hear on this episode. And I will give you more information at the end of this show. You can also go to the website and inexactscience.podbean.com to find a link with more info. Or you can just skip to the end of this show right now to get that information. But please, don't turn the volume down at the end of this show until you hear about that study. We want to get this information to as many people as possible. Okay, so more on that later. Now here's the show. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. I think there's a certain view of life as aiming to make memories. That's kind of selling out your present for the future or something like that. I mean, that's living your life constrained by what it will seem like from the future as opposed to maybe what you spontaneously will to do at that point in time. Hey, Papa. How did you find me? I knew you were out here. Oh, you? Mm-hmm. I love you. I love you. How are you doing? What are you doing? I'll come out here and put some stuff around. John, I'm ready to go in the front door if you are. All right, let's do it. What's going on inside? What? What's going on inside? So it used to be that when he was first beginning to lose his memory, only those of us that were close to him could tell. Now he's to a point that anyone who talks to him for a few minutes can tell that his memory isn't there. Not only does he not remember people that he should, including me, He will oftentimes ask a question, he will listen to the answer, and he'll ask the exact same thing five minutes later. Who has blue eyes, your daddy? That's your oldest son. What's his name? I don't remember. My understanding of who we are is changing. We are the neurons in our brain. We are the small spaces between those neurons. And once those neurons cease to transmit signals, those things that were held in the synaptic junctions are lost forever. This has been the hardest part to accept. That there is no universal safe box to store all of our memories, all of our moments. Every moment that I told you that I love you, every moment that we laughed together, every moment that you have sung to me, those moments only exist in our memories. And once our brains fade, so does all that we have lived together. You only have the here and now. Come out, keep rubbing my nose. What is that saying? If your nose itches, you love pictures. Is that what it is? I think I'm walking too slow. No, you're walking just right. I love you. I love you. Where do I gotta go now? Right in here, to the right. Is this one? Yeah. It's your bedroom. Blessed the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to your service. Oh, yes, what's, what's belt you want? I don't care. Which one do you think I would have guessed? Let's get maybe. I'll lose my mind. 
That looks all right to me. Either one of them. You I like this one. Is that okay? Is that one too big for you? No, I, mean, too I don't big. think so. Do you think it is? I think it's pretty big. I was coming to hold your hand. What? I was wanting you to hold, hold your hand. hand. Is that all right? Yes. My name is Marion Virgil Cantrell, Jr. I am the oldest son of Idadel and Virgil Cantrell. Uh, yeah, my dad, when he was growing up, uh, he he grew up on what uh, the farms, what they called sharecropper farms. Uh, when he was young, his family had nothing except maybe the clothes on their back. He had uh, five younger brothers and one sister, and they would uh, they would usually be a big farm somewhere, and the man would might have a some little small house on his farm. Basically, they would work the man's land and grow the crops and stuff, and the man would get uh, a large percentage of the crops, and they would get part of them, you know, enough to eat and can or whatever. And uh, but they'd had to basically work for him, you know. So he did that most of his life until he probably. Oh, probably 17 or 18 years old. That was pretty much his upbringing. Should have put what I do with this chair. Put it back under that sewing machine right there, please. My name is Adadale Lindley Cantrell. I'll get our table cleaned off and you can give us some dishes. And I was born August 11th, 1928, in Greenville, South Carolina. And Papa and Philip glasses. Well, what? Virgil Cantrell is my husband. What glasses should have put? And he was born June the 20th, 1928. Okay, we met uh, when we were, I think it was probably in the ninth or tenth grade. I went to Gaffney High School. He went to Boiling Springs High School. My daddy was a minister, and he had two churches. One was at Glendale. South Carolina. The other was Mountain View. Virgil went to Mountain View to church. So on um, Sunday nights, where I went with the, my dad to Mountain View, and they had a, a class called um, BYPU, which was a kind of like a Sunday school class, but it was at night and had the boys and girls together. He was the uh, secretary of his class, Sunday school. Uh, training in your class and I tried to help him but he didn't want any help. He was not, he was kind of stuck up, wouldn't have much to say to do. He You're said, talking about me? Yes. <laughs> he says he was just bashful. I don't know. My first memory of him was uh, he was always working. He was, uh, he worked for the U.S. Post Office and he was a letter carrier. And uh, he worked all over the town of Greenville, South Carolina. He'd have to be at work at like 6.30 or something like that in the morning. And he, a lot of times he'd be 8, 9, or 10 o'clock sometimes when he'd get off at night. Great day. Is that too much or enough? I think it's perfect. I don't want any ice in mine. Okay. Is that one yours? Whose is that? I don't know. You just put a little bit in that one? What I'm supposed he to tells everybody we dated for 10 years before we got married, but really we didn't. We got married when we were 21. When you met Papa, 
Why were Why did you like him? Oh, I just, I don't know. <laughs> he was a good-looking guy, I guess, and I just liked his character and everything. There were a lot of boys and girls in the group. When was the first time you and Papa kissed? After I said, I, we, when he asked me to marry him, and I said yes. I, didn't, I wouldn't let him kiss me before that. <laughs> he was always friendly and kind and encouraging other people. And, and do anything in the world for him. He'd almost give him the shirt off his back for him. Uh, but he was pretty strict on us. I mean, he wasn't very, uh, he was never unfair. There was never a time that he was unfair to us. Put, quit putting that in my plate. Okay, if you want some of those, you gotta eat some of this. What? You heard me. Um, I guess it's been a couple of years since he got to the point that he didn't remember too much. <laughs> I mean, he'd forget a lot of things. And they told me I was just a denial. I was in denial, and I didn't realize that he was getting to that point. Think about it. He was a mail carrier for years, and he could go up and down the street and tell you just about who lived on most of these, probably the majority of the streets in Greenville at one time, and tell you about their families and the dogs and the kids and all that. So he had a sharp memory. And it, now Lisa, he'll remember you probably the rest of the day. But if you came in tomorrow about dinner time, he might call you Nancy or, or Karen or even call you my name. I guess he had probably been having trouble beginning to forget things all along, which I didn't really notice or I did. But, you know, I just assumed that we all forget things. It seemed to me that it all started happening when he started having surgeries, when he got put to sleep. I guess the biggest uh, thing I started noticing uh, probably had to do with my mother when she would tell me about he would have trouble when they were driving sometimes. You know, he would, uh, he wouldn't, she would tell him something to do and he wouldn't know where to turn or he wouldn't know how to get to a place across town. Places she'd been to a lot of times, you know, and she began to describe that. I was going to ask you to tell a little bit about when when Papa first started losing some of his memory and he kind of said that it was because he was a mailman. Do you oh, yes. He, he would say he had to forget these things. Are but, you out of Dale Cantrell? Yes. Now, no, let's listen to her. Okay. We'll look at that later. All right. Okay. When people would move in and out the homes on his route, he'd have learned, you know, learned their names while they were living there. And when they moved, he said he had to forget them and dwell on who had moved in. So he used that as an excuse because he couldn't remember, or couldn't remember people, that he had uh, trained himself to forget things and move on to what was going on now instead of trying to remember everything that happened in the past. And I accepted that. I, I, I guess I just said, okay. So probably two years ago, it really got really, really bad. You know, and it's just... Uh, just gone downhill pretty steady since then. But did it ever? Did it ever before, or does it ever make you sad? Make me sad. Makes me sad that he can't remember. Yes. Where do I gotta go now? Right in here, to the right. To this one? Yeah. It's your bedroom. Or two. Over to the closet. As you know, I forget a lot of things. Go to the closet and. Get you a belt. I don't know. I mean, probably not as much as some people, but certainly more than some other people. I, f I forget 
episodes that happen to me sometimes. It's an extremely unpleasant feeling when I can't, even when prompted, sometimes I can't remember certain things I did or certain, you know, places I went with somebody, oh, let's right say. Which, which belt you want? I don't care. Which one you think I'm gonna get? Let's get maybe a brown one. I think it's very unpleasant because it gives me this strong feeling of mortality because you realize, okay, well, that basically, I don't want to say it was lived for nothing, but it just seems like it, then it doesn't exist. And it's like a little feeling of what just not existing would be like in general, where none of the things you did are present anymore. I've got tendencies. They keep me going when I can't see. They know when I'm away again. Lost in my mind where I can free you now. Pulls right out of skin. These fibers, they come and go again, but they won't always be coming back in. I'll lose my mind and you lose your features So my name is Bill Jagist. I am a professor of uh, neuroscience and public health at the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute and the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. My name is Dr. Risa Sperling, and I'm a neurologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So dementia is is a syndrome. So in, in medicine, a syndrome is a bunch of symptoms. Uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, is the most common cause of dementia. So Alzheimer's uh, disease clinically um, typically presents with problems with short-term memory. People losing cognitive ability. Difficulty remembering what they said a few minutes ago, a few hours ago, a few days ago. And the loss of memory spreads to involve other kinds of cognitive functions. Sometimes we refer to this as executive function or ability to multitask. And because of that loss of cognitive ability, they lose the ability to do their activities of daily living. They can't take care of themselves and it's a progressive disorder. There are certainly changes that are apparent in the brain to the naked eye. The brain shrinks, that's the bottom line. Uh, the gray matter uh, especially shrinks, but the white matter does also. Uh, one of the interesting uh, facts about Alzheimer's is that the atrophy or the shrinkage isn't just completely random. We know now that one of the first places in the brain 
that seems to change early in Alzheimer's disease is deep in the brain called the hippocampus. And this is an area of the brain that's important for memory. So you can actually use an MRI scan to measure the volume of the hippocampus. And that certainly is smaller in people with Alzheimer's disease in very early stages. And we know that tangles form here early in the hippocampus. The tangles are formed of a protein called tau, which builds up inside nerve cells in neurons and unfortunately leads to dysfunction and neuronal loss. Interestingly, the other hallmark pathologies, which are amyloid plaques, don't start in the hippocampus, but they start up in areas of the brain we refer to as heteromodal cortex. So the amyloid plaques and the tau neurofibrillary tangles are the pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And when those are present in the brain, at autopsy in someone who's experienced dementia during life, then we say that was Alzheimer's disease. Here is what we know. We know that there are two things, two main things that we can see happening in the brain that appear to be related to Alzheimer's, and they involve changes to the hippocampus as well as cortex. The first is something called beta amyloid plaque, which happens all over the brain, happens a lot in cortex. And the other is neurofibrillary tangles made up of a protein called tau, which may be especially damaging to the hippocampus. So it's amyloid plaque and tau tangles. I want to break this down to make it a bit more understandable. Both tau and beta amyloid are proteins or fragments of proteins that are found naturally in our bodies and brains. Beta amyloid comes from a larger protein called APP, amyloid precursor protein. And this protein, we think, is involved in normal healthy functioning of the brain, possibly in generating healthy synapses. However, APP can break into smaller pieces, and these protein fragments are typically cleaned up by our healthy brains. So for example, APP may break off little bits of protein. Those proteins frequently are beta amyloid. And when that happens, Beta amyloid is just kind of floating around there in the spaces between our neurons. But our brains have house cleaning mechanisms that come in, sweep up, and then reuse these protein fragments. So what all this means is typically, this whole thing, the APP getting broken down into beta amyloid fragments, it's not a problem because everything gets swept up and reused. But then something happens as we age, and this process of cleaning up protein fragments starts to slow or becomes dysfunctional. And as our brains become less good at cleaning up the beta amyloid protein fragments, pieces begin to aggregate and clump around the neurons, creating what is called amyloid plaque. There are different forms of this beta amyloid. The, uh, the, the two most common are 42 and 40 amino acids uh, long. And the uh, 42 amino acid amyloid ha tends to be very sticky and it aggregates. And it seems that when it aggregates in forms of relatively small numbers of molecules, they're very toxic. Why do we think that beta amyloid is related to Alzheimer's disease? Well, there are genetic mutations that can lead to Alzheimer's. These are extremely rare. Um, they're extremely rare mutations. All of these mutations involve the uh, amyloid processing pathway in some way. And basically, the individuals who have these mutations have an insanely high risk of developing Alzheimer's. 100% of the time, these individuals who have these rare mutations develop Alzheimer's disease, and often very young. So for a while, we thought amyloid plaque was the culprit, because people with these genetic mutations, whose brains may overproduce beta amyloid, or whose brains can't clear out the beta amyloid, they frequently develop Alzheimer's disease. 
But as in many things in science, it's not that simple. Uh, so one of the most interesting findings is that um, the relationship between the amount of amyloid in the brain and the location of amyloid in the brain and the individual symptoms is very weak uh, or even non-existent. Uh, so this has been a major thorn in the side of the amyloid hypothesis. We now have brain imaging techniques that allow us to see how much and where beta amyloid is in a person's brain. There are some people with a tremendous amount of amyloid in the brain who don't have dementia. We know that about 30% of people in their late 70s, for example, who are cognitively intact can have substantial amounts of amyloid pathology in the brain. And then enters tau. So, so tau is very different. It's an intraneuronal protein. It's part, of the neuro, uh, it's part of the neuronal cytoskeleton. Tau is a protein that is also a part of normal healthy functioning of the brain. It's a protein that's part of the microtubule okay. um, in, the, in the neuron. But this protein can also go haywire and start to form tangles inside the neurons potentially leading to neuronal death. And it is, in fact, the case that these neurofibrillary tangles made up of tau do have a very high correlation to the behavioral deficits that we see in people with Alzheimer's. While there are poor correlations with the amount of amyloid in the brain, there are pretty good correlations with the amount of tau in the brain. So the more tangles in the neurons in a person's brain, the more signs of memory loss and Alzheimer's in that person. But this does not mean that amyloid is completely off the hook. It is the case that amyloid is invariably found in the brain of Alzheimer's disease patients. I think it's pretty clear to me from all the evidence that if you have amyloid in your brain, your risk of getting Alzheimer's is probably higher. Um, but how much higher and over what period of time, you know, we really still don't exactly know. So whatever role amyloid plaque is playing, it seems to be doing it very early on. And whereas it doesn't seem to be the direct cause of memory loss, it seems to be somehow setting the stage for these later problems. Something I haven't told you yet is that amyloid plaque may be a very early sign of later Alzheimer's disease. Because what appears to be happening is that amyloid starts to clump in a person's brain. And from the moment that we see this happening in someone's brain, there's about a 20-year period of time before we can actually observe behavioral deficits. Uh, if we know you turn positive for amyloid, for example, if you have a scan when you're 70 and you're negative, and you have a scan when you're 75 and you're positive, mm -hmm. we can estimate that you probably would get Alzheimer's disease when you're 95. One of the current hypotheses is that amyloid is somehow related to tau. So the idea is that the amyloid triggers all these other downstream processes okay. that then cause the trouble. That it somehow may trigger a cascade of effects that lead to the tangling of tau inside the neurons. And this process, this cascade of effects, may take years. But this is the part that we still don't understand. We still don't know what that relationship is exactly. Although there is new work that was conducted by Rudy Tanzi at the Mass General Hospital. And that work has shown that if you grow neurons in a Petri dish, ones that have these strange genetic mutations that cause a lot of amyloid buildup, those same neurons, after building up a lot of amyloid, will also begin to form tau tangles. Again, the exact path from amyloid to tau isn't 100% worked out yet, but this study, at the very least, gives some evidence that there's a relation between the two protein dysfunctions. And the thought is that the amyloid plaques somehow, or amyloid in general, um, accelerates the spread of tau. So that's mm -hmm. one possibility of how they interact. This is actually something I work on um, and I think is really important as we think about therapies for Alzheimer's disease. And hopefully someday we'll be able to treat both amyloid and uh, tau in neurofibrillary tangles. 
There is, to date, no real cure for Alzheimer's disease. There are drugs on the market that may have a very small effect, but the state of affairs at the moment is this. Once a person has begun to show signs of Alzheimer's disease, it may be too late. There is no real way of going back. There may, however, be ways to prevent Alzheimer's from ever happening. And this is where much of the research right now is aimed. We do know that people who are more cognitively active have a decreased chance of developing Alzheimer's. So one way to combat this disease is to potentially lead a cognitively active life. So there's this famous study. It was published in 2002 in the Journal of the American Medical Association by researchers at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center in Chicago. The group of researchers, headed by Robert Wilson, tested adults multiple times over a period of seven years. And they found that those individuals who were most cognitively active at the beginning of the study were also less likely to show signs of dementia and Alzheimer's at the end of the study. Bill Jagus has similar results in his own work. One of the things we found is that people who um, are more cognitively active during life uh, seem to have less amyloid accumulation in their brain. And Risa Sperling is actually now testing a new drug that may help to control the levels of amyloid in the brain. And the study is called the A4 trial. So the A4 trial is a very large study. It's over a thousand individuals who are found to have evidence of amyloid buildup in their brains, and they will be receiving an antibody against amyloid or a placebo a drug for about three and a half years. And we will measure whether we can see a difference in the rate of memory decline. They are still recruiting people to participate in the A4 trial. And at the very end of this episode, I'll give you more information so that you can find out how you can be a part of it. So it's Christmas Eve and I was just lying in my bed and I was thinking about my grandfather. Watch out for that speed bump! Okay. <laughs> did we make it? We did. I love you. I love you. I have this one memory maybe like two years ago when he could still remember me. Where do I gotta go now? Right in here, to the right. When we were walking outside and he was pulling figs off of this tree in his yard. I don't really know why that stands out in my mind. I just remember it being one of the last times that I think he was mostly there. I think there's a certain view of life as aiming to make memories. That's kind of selling out your present for the future or something like that. I mean, that's... We're all going to die, right? So wouldn't you rather die at 90 of a heart attack than get Alzheimer's when you're 70 and live to 90 with Alzheimer's disease, right? We're not trying to make people immortal. We're just trying to cure Alzheimer's disease. Um, so I think if you could postpone Alzheimer's disease even for 20 or 30 years, you probably would cure almost all of it. No one would argue that that's a better life. The A4 study is a nationwide study. A4 stands for Anti-Amyloid Treatment in Asymptomatic Alzheimer's. 
The study is being headed by Dr. Risa Sperling, and it's for older adults between 65 and 85 years of age who currently do not have any signs of memory loss or Alzheimer's, but who have elevated levels of amyloid in their brain. You can find out if you or someone you know is eligible for this study by going to one of the many centers that have been set up across the country. To find a center that is near you, go to their website, a4study.org. That's A, the letter, for the number, study, a4study.org. I also have posted a link to that website on our own website, and inexactscience.podbean.com. Please pass this information along. This study is important to our understanding of Alzheimer's and in figuring out how to prevent it. Thank you to Dr. Risa Sperling and to Dr. Bill Jagist for their scientific contributions to this episode. Thanks to Artemy Kolchinsky for sharing his thoughts on memory. And thank you to my father, Marion Cantrell, and my grandmother, Ida Del Cantrell, for sharing their story. And to my grandfather, who forces me to live in the present. All of the music that you heard in this episode came from Follies. As always, if you like this episode, subscribe to it on iTunes and please share it with others.